Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. On this episode of the Alpha Exchange, it was my distinct privilege to be joined by Glenn Stevens, who resided over the Reserve Bank of Australia as governor from 2006 to 2016. Considered one of the most gifted central bankers of our time, Glenn successfully navigated Australia's economy through the crisis without a recession. A 36-year career at the RBA has imparted him with an appreciation for the inherent challenges in economic forecasting. And in this context, we touch on Glenn's decision to tighten policy in early 2008 as inflation in Australia rose, only to sharply reverse course, easing several months later as the global financial crisis began. Our conversation is a retrospective on the GFC, the fast-moving and unnerving time that demanded and benefited from policymaker coordination. In Glenn's view, the interconnected nature of markets and the economy during the crisis also forced central banks to view asset prices in a more endogenous light, assigning more weight to the impact of financial conditions on the real economy. I also solicit Glenn's views on how the RBA's goals and considerations may be shaped by unique attributes of the Australian economy. Lastly, we spend time, of course, on the puzzle that is inflation and the related phenomenon of negative interest rates. I'm excited to bring you this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my discussion with Glenn Stevens. Glenn, it is a real pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, when, when we met, it was in early 2017, and I was hosting a macro symposium for some of our clients. And I reached out to several clients and I said, I'm really interested in working with some central bankers. Who are the best out there? And the names that were repeated were Professor Rajan at the University of Chicago and former head of the RBI and Glenn Stevens. So I'm real honored to have you on today. Your reputation precedes you as a very successful governor and leader at the RBA. You started at the RBA in 1980 as I understand it. Take us back to your starting point in you know, policy and markets. How is it that you developed your interest in finance and economics? It's a kind of a boring story, Dean, in a way, and somewhat serendipitous. I guess I studied economics at high school. And to be honest with you, I found it a little bit tedious at the time. But as it turned out, I was reasonably good at it and went into University of Sydney and studied economics there. And, and the economics world was in turmoil then because this is the second half of the 70s. And so, you know, the long post-war boom had ended. There was all the disruption of the oil price shocks in, in the 70s, high inflation, stagflation, and so on. So that was the kind of formative period in which I was a student of economics, and then I joined the central bank, I guess because I kind of liked the idea of it being a bank. It was in Sydney, so I didn't have to move cities. And I thought I'll be there for a few years and then move on to something else. And, of course, I was there for 36 years in the end. I guess what I found interesting early in my time there was learning how the economy works, how its dynamics unfold, and getting a sense of history, economic history. In fact, one of the first serious bits of research I did there was to compare 
the recession we had in the early 80s, which was a pretty serious one in Australia, with the Great Depression of the 1930s. There are a lot of people claiming that the two were equal in magnitude, which of course was nonsense. The, the 1930s was orders of magnitude more serious, but that that research kind of got me interested in having a bit of a historical perspective on how economies work and how things unfold over time. So I, I joined there and worked in the economics function for quite a long time, had a bit of a stint in the international area where I learned a bit about how markets work and sometimes don't work. And then I was privileged to become the bank's chief economist in, in the mid-90s, which was a fantastic role to have. So that's kind of a part of the history of how I got into all this. And as you were in the economics department and then ultimately rose to chief economist, were there specific areas of research or, or aspects of the discipline of studying economics that were of particular interest to you? Did you develop a specialty or was the idea for the department to be pretty well diversified across different kind of sub-disciplines? I was never really that interested in being a pure researcher. We had some very gifted people who were technically, you know, far in advance of, of my skills in terms of their, their academic qualifications. And they wanted to do very high quality research and they did, they did it very well. But I was more interested in taking the skills that one could acquire from academic training and, and asking, you know, how do I... How do I apply this? How do I use these tools to understand what's actually going on in the economy? Because I think in policy making, you know, people talk about forecasting a lot, and, and that's that's something to to discuss perhaps. But in those days, and I think still, the biggest problem you have is that you don't actually know where the economy is right now. The data you have is all lagging. It's measured with error. There's sensitivity to revision. And so just what people now call these days now casting, that's actually a big part, part of the, the task of an economics department of the central bank and, and its staff because you, you're trying to tell the bosses, the policy makers, what their jumping off point is for the couple of years ahead over which they can have some effect with their policy instruments. So I was interested in how to understand what the data said, how to sort of put it through a filter of, of analytical tools to, to understand it as a sort of a jumping off point for, for the policy decision. That's what I was more interested in than being in a, in a specialised research area per se. I guess... What I would say is that thinking back to those days, the big rage at the time was financial liberalisation. We, we were in the process of liberalising our system. The US was doing that, was a, a little bit ahead of us in, in time. Other countries were doing likewise. There was a lot of confidence that a liberated financial system would be good for resource allocation in the economy, would be good for dynamism and growth and so on. And, and we had also learned how hard it is actually to regulate effectively. It, it sounds easy. 
when people say just have a regulation to stop something happening or make it happen, after 30 or 40 years of doing that post-World War II, the difficulties and the shortcomings of that approach were all too apparent. And, and so we were all liberalising financial systems. We were perhaps a little naive in certain respects about the risks and, and rewards of that, but, but that was that was the sort of zeitgeist at the time, quite, quite different to the way things are at present. And I guess following on from that, one of the things that is very prominent in central bank research these days is financial stability and all the, the kind of ins and outs and the details of that and risk assessments and so on. And it's good that that work gets done that I think is a very big change from the the economic analysis and research world that I sort of entered into in 1980 as a, a fresh-faced economic graduate. That, that's quite a big change and, and it's a welcome one, I guess. One of the things that I think I've read from you is this notion that, and I think you're maybe alluding to it there, is that for years and years, the financial markets themselves were exogenous and they didn't fit into the way in which central bankers thought about risks and maybe generated their for- forecasts. And I think we've we've learned some lessons, certainly in the US, but globally as well, the, the way in which asset prices themselves can be part of the problem, sometimes part of the solution, but certainly they seem to matter. So I want to you know kind of ask you about that a little bit. But before that. I was just curious, as you were describing the work you've done at the RBA, I was just wondering, you know, Australia is a very unique, it's a specific economy. It's got some specific attributes. And I was wondering if, if there were aspects of how the RBA conducted its mission that ultimately were a function of the specific attributes of the Australian economy. Maybe it's the the way in which resource prices really matter, you know, sensitivities maybe to the currency itself seems to matter quite a bit. As I was reading some of the financial stability reports, it does seem to come up. But I'm, I'm curious if, is that a thing that the central bank is itself a function of the, the economy that it oversees? I think there's something to that. If you look around the, the central banks of the world, you know, if you take the Europeans, for example, the, the price stability only mandate that the ECB has today, which was largely, you know, a descendant of the Deutsche Bundesbank's mandate. Th- there's a reason in history for why they, they have that mandate and, and why they have thought the way they do. And it's, it's the hyperinflation in Germany's history way back. There's a reason that the Fed and the RBA would be in this category too, has what you could call a dual mandate for employment as well as price stability. And and that's because I think anyway, the, the scarring experience that's in our national psyche was the high unemployment and deflation of the 1930s. It's nearly 100 years ago, but those historical events, which are so traumatic, become ingrained into the psychological makeup of a society, I think. And 
they find reflection in the way the institutions of those societies are structured. That's natural and it's appropriate. In the case of Australia, you know, obviously I don't want to get into current policy things in any way, but the you put your finger on the floating exchange rate, which, you know, took us quite a long time to get to the point where we were prepared to let it float. But it's a very important stabiliser for a country that has very large swings in our terms of trade through the natural resource cycle in the global economy. That is, that is not a thing that, say, the US economy, at least up to now, has, has kind of needed in the same way, but it's a stabiliser for us, and Canada is somewhat similar. Again, large natural resource sector, a floating exchange rate that by and large goes up and down with the commodity cycle is a thing that's a natural uh, stabiliser for the economy, and it, it helps the central bank do its job, and, and certainly... In our case, the success in managing the business cycle and keeping inflation fairly low and steady was orders of magnitude more successful after the exchange rate floated compared with the pre-float period. So I think you're right. Countries have their own structural unique things and the institutions that, that they construct reflect that and in our case letting the exchange rate adjust and sometimes adjust quite a lot has been a stabilising thing for the economy and made the central bank's job by and large easier, I would say. Pretty nerve-wracking at times, but by and large, it's, it's been a big help. Well, we talked a little bit about markets and, and the way in which they interact with monetary policy and certainly economies. Your ascendancy to the leadership of the RBA was... In 2006, you could kind of hear a pin drop in terms of volatility in markets, but of course there was a an awful lot of leverage, it turns out, being stacked up in, in the mortgage industry in, in the United States and, and, and globally. What was that period like for you, that, that pre-crisis period where things seemed okay? Certainly the statistics suggested things were okay. There was certainly in the U.S., wide recognition that some of the housing price appreciation, you might even call absurd, the rate of growth of housing prices. As you took on that role, what were things like in, in you know, kind of late 2006 and through 2007? Well, it was, it was the very end of the good old days, I guess. I was conscious when I took on the role that in our case, we'd already had a pretty long expansion and I think when you become a central bank governor, one of the first things you have to say to yourself is that, you know, I'm going to be in this job for seven years. In our case, is the normal term of appointment. And something's going to go wrong in that time. We don't know what it will be, obviously, but whatever it is, we will have to deal with it. So I was conscious that, you know, things look really nice right now, but we can't assume that will continue and there'll be some set of events that will have us running pretty fast to, to kind of manage. It was the end of that period known as the Great Moderation, low volatility of real, the real economy, low, low and very stable inflation, low and stable interest rates, and, you know, that it was a time when central banks were probably 
around the world at the height of their, their prestige. One had a sense that, look, you know, this is unusually good, this, it can't be this good always and, and something will happen. And then I remember in early 2007 at the morning meeting that we, we, were have, we had every day to have a roundup of what was going on around markets and economics every overnight. So we'd have that meeting each morning and the staff started to bring along charts showing the rise in delinquencies, I think you call them over there on subprime mortgages, and they were rising quite steeply. And to be honest, I'd never heard of a subprime mortgage until then. And you had a sense that, well, this, this looks like potentially pretty big event and, and so we went from there so as you said at the beginning a few things happened <laughs> during the 10 years I was in the seats and the period of stability was unfortunately rather short-lived at the beginning you had in the early part of 2008 I know there was I think one maybe two turns of, of tightening of policy as inflation was rising in Australia you obviously quickly and, and very dramatically reversed course. What do you remember was just, you know, occupying most of your team's time at, at, at that point? Was there, did it very quickly become a focus on markets and defaults and this notion of systemic risk? How were you balancing sort of those concerns and, and looking after the potential spillover there with what was going on on the ground in, in terms of the economy? Well, we had at home an economy which was still tending to overheat and indeed inflation got to 5% around the middle of 2008 or maybe just past the middle of that year. And by that stage, we were already starting to, to, to ease again. So we had overheating at home, very confident consumers. And then internationally, we had this worrying buildup of tension and the sense that at any moment, things could unravel, you know, at a, at a very rapid pace. That's that's quite a tricky set of forces to balance. And I suppose what's in one's mind is we have to respond to what's happening at home now, but we may have to start to respond in the other direction if things abroad turn out worse than, than expected. And I think when Bear Stones was rescued... My sense is that there tended to be an assumption everywhere that anybody bigger than them would therefore also get sorted. And, of course, that, that wasn't able to happen in the Lehman case. And once that became apparent, then things turned south very rapidly in the, the later months of 2008 there. And we had to respond quite rapidly to that. I guess one thing we had in our favour was we had a lot of interest rate ammunition we could use. We did use it, and I think it was, was quite effective, but it was certainly a difficult period. You mentioned mentioned Lehman, of course, in, in September of 08. I think it's a, the Lehman weekend was 11 years ago this, this past weekend. It took a couple of months, actually, for the system to truly buckle over. Things obviously were awful, but just going on much worse in the very late part of 2008. And I'll give you a little bit of trivia as it regards to your birthday on November 20th. That's the all-time high close ever in the VIX. 80.86 is the November 20th close. And my, my daughter was born 
November 19th, 2008. So she's got the third highest close. It was like 75 <laughs> or something so you, like that. You, you had a few things on your mind. Yeah. <laughs> time, obviously. Yeah. Things were crazy in markets and bringing in my third child into the world. Did Australia embark on, outside of very aggressive rate cuts, I, it looks like 375 basis points from the high in 2008 to, to where you ended up or, or right around there. So that's obviously aggressive. Was there any of the alphabet soup of rescue facilities like TALF and the primary dealer credit facilities and, and all these other things that Bernanke and company had to conjure up? Did, did you have to engage in that or not? It's quite a long time ago, so my memory is going to be hazy, but we did do things which I think you could put under the, the heading of wider range of collateral for the system. And the RBA did boost its own balance sheet by about, we roughly doubled it. Probably, I think that was probably in early 2009. All of that was out of the system again by the middle of the year. So it was fairly brief. But we did take the view that there should be ample liquidity that, in my view, the system can have as much liquidity as it wants subject to bringing us collateral that we can accept. And there was no shortage of high-quality collateral, including particularly you know, mortgage-backed securities, that we were prepared to take on repo. There were some other initiatives that were more in the government's domain to do with specific credit crunch or potential credit crunches in specific areas of the economy. They were, but we weren't doing those. The government was taking care of those, I think, effectively. And I don't remember the full details of them, to be honest. And then there was, of course, the guarantee of deposits and the wholesale guarantee for, for wholesale funding for the financial institutions, we ended up in our country needing to do that mainly because everybody else was doing it. And if you didn't do it, people will kind of look at you and well, why not? And in those events, I think the truth is that you have to err on the side of overdoing the response. You don't want to find yourself kind of under-calibrating your response and then then it, it falls flat in terms of market expectations and acceptance, and then you've got a you've got a an even bigger hurdle to jump at your next attempt. So, I think it's always going to be the case that in moments of potential catastrophe like that, you have to err on the side of overkill. So there are a number of things done. We did some. The government did a number of things really designed to secure the availability of funding for the, the, the financial institutions and through them to particular segments of the economy that were otherwise at risk. We didn't have to do the alphabet soup, as you put it, the Fed did. But apart from the problem of funding markets closing for a brief period there, we didn't actually have large institutions that were bordering on insolvent. We didn't have that problem. And so we didn't, and, and let's be honest, the, the things that the Fed did 
was sufficiently effective for the global economy that it helped everybody. And, you know, that's, that's perhaps inside the United States that's maybe not as appreciated as it might be. Um, and maybe some people think that, that it's not the Fed's business to do that. But the fact is the Fed was instrumental in saving the world at that time. And that, that helped us, obviously, as much as it helped every other country. It's a really interesting, and maybe we just all got very lucky to have someone like Bernanke, who's very, you know, very philosophy in, in, in how he thought about economics and markets was so geared towards studying that Great Depression. You know, this notion that, you know, you had to be aggressive, you had to be strong, and, and you had to ultimately make sure that the supply of credit didn't, you know, get unduly restricted. And the sort of things that they came up with as he likes to describe just on Sunday nights, <laughs> was unbelievable. And, you know, I'm left with this notion that the Fed specifically really f fought this fire of asset prices f in such an intense way that there's almost permanent scars. And it might have left them kind of overdoing some of the, you know, post-crisis policies that were remained extraordinary. But, and I think this is where I want to go with it, you know, might have lost some of their efficacy over time. We've got this almost newfound global disinflation cycle, certainly a global easing cycle. What do you make of the big picture of where we are on the rates and inflation side? How do you think we got here specifically? You know, Germany, 10 years at minus 70, at least for a short period of time. What are the big factors that you think are operative in terms of, of rates and inflation at this point in time? Well, I think when, when you try to work out how do we get here, what I would say, and I've said this in the past numerous times in public when I was, was in the former role, I think central bank action in that period of late 2008 and, and early 2009 was very effective at putting a floor under the financial system at stopping what was already a very bad situation turning into a catastrophe. It could have been actually much, much worse. It could have been catastrophic. And as you say, we were fortunate to have perhaps the world's foremost scholar of the Great Depression and all those dynamics sitting in the seat at the Fed at the time. And I think what, what the Fed did and what the other central banks also did in the extent of central bank cooperation, which was remarkably good, actually, in that period, as I recall it, and that's, that's the payoff from all those visits to Basel, but when it came time for genuine cooperative efforts, always within our own mandates, but nonetheless, the need for genuine cooperation among the central banks, it happened, I think, quite effectively and very quickly. And so that put a floor under the financial system and it, it averted what could have been a catastrophic contraction of banking and credit globally. So that, that's, there's no doubt I think that that was a success. But it's another thing entirely to then be able, using monetary policy, to restore, in some sense, the, the status quo ex ante, to bring back the growth 
and the levels of activity that we had had previously, I think monetary policy was always going to struggle to do that. And I remember reading at the time that great book by Reinhardt and Rogoff called This Time is Different, the ironic title because it, it actually isn't different. And the lesson of that book was from 800 years of, of the history of financial crises, it's almost always going to be the case that a crisis of this nature is followed by a fairly slow protracted recovery and I think it was always going to be the case that monetary policy's power to accelerate that process was going to be limited not not completely powerless but it was going to be of limited power and I think the central banks for the past 10 years have mostly been in the position of wanting to expedite the recovery, to do whatever they could do to help it happen. None of them were going to die wondering could they or should they have tried more. And the reason for that is they're diligently seeking to achieve the mandate that they've been given. The fact that their instruments are less powerful doesn't absolve them of the responsibility of trying and so they have tried, but I think it was always going to be the case that in, a, in the recovery from a period of excessive leverage, when people, people really want to contain their leverage or get it down, and they certainly don't want to raise, increase it the way they had been, just cutting interest rates alone, it, it helps. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have done the QE things either. But I think all these things were going to be of limited power. I think that was just inevitable. And that's how we've got to today. I think given how difficult the recovery was to get going, even in the US, and the US has had, of the major jurisdictions, it's, it's had the most successful recovery. But even there, it was difficult to get it going. And so you could see why policymakers... I think have been anxious about any sign that the recovery might falter because it's difficult to get it. It was difficult to get it going to begin with. You certainly would not want to inadvertently prematurely end the recovery by tightening prematurely or tightening too much because it's very hard to restart the recovery if it faltered. So I think that's the backdrop to how we get to the lowest interest rates in recorded human history, which is what we've seen in, in recent years. So the central banks had to do what they've done, I think, because they feel obligated to try to achieve the mandate that they've been given, but the instruments at their disposal have more limited power in this scenario than they had in, in previous sort of states of the world. I think that's just the way it is. That's sort of my version, Dean, of, of how we've gotten to, to where we are today. You know, the central banks do a lot of things. I think Bernanke, one of his quotes that I always enjoyed was, 
central banking is 98% talk and 2% action or some, something like that. Just illustrating, especially, I guess, for, for a behemoth like the Fed, that what you say, if you say it powerfully to markets and hold out very strong conviction on your promises, you can, you can push prices around. Certain, certainly in financial markets, words are bullets. Yes. You have to be extremely careful what you say. And we all learn this as central bankers. We, 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 we all have early in our time some inadvertent, you know, off-the-cuff remark that, that you didn't intend to mean very much, but it's, it's taken by market participants and magnified into something that you didn't intend. And we've all... We've all kind of had that happen, hopefully not too often, and it's a scarring experience. And that means that people are very careful about what they say, which then means that markets turn up the volume on the amplifier even more because they're trying to detect a signal even when no signal is intended or needed. So the more circumspect the central bank is, the more careful it is in its language the higher the kind of amplification that markets tend to put on whatever it is that they do say. I don't know how you get around that problem. It is, a, I think, a significant problem. I don't know how you avoid it. One of the things I wanted to get your, your take on, we had a little exchange over email on this, is just this, this broad topic of, of negative interest rates. I think Greenspan said the difference between or crossing zero doesn't really mean much. And I think in some ways he's 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 kind of right in the sense that, you know, if something yields one basis point or minus one basis point, not not really a a big difference there. They're ba- both basically zero. But I was looking, this was about 3 weeks ago, the the height of the the bid to bonds and negative rates. And so you have a ECB determined deposit rate of minus 40. And you still have an inverted curve. It's quite fascinating. I mentioned earlier the 10-year German Bund traded as low in yield at, at as minus 70. That's sure the, the, the deposit rate is sent by, set by the ECB, and maybe the yield curve flows from that, but it's still a striking, striking market-determined price. People are buying these bonds at that level. I'm just curious. You've been in policy and markets for a long time. Is this something you ever thought you would see? What are your big takeaways from what what we see on our screens these days? It's not something that I thought I would see on a sustained basis. I think there was back in the 70s one or two brief episodes where the Swiss ran negative short rates as a device to uh, there was a lot of upper pressure on the Swiss franc and so I think they were seeking to dissuade foreign investors from holding the Swiss currency but that was pretty brief it didn't go on for years and it was at the short end I think not at the long end so a negative rate of return over 10 years or longer in nominal terms is is not something that I thought I would see. And, and just to repeat the point, my understanding is that, as, as best we can tell from the history, there have never been interest rates that low in recorded history back to Babylon, which makes you think, really, you know, 
yes, people are a little bit pessimistic about the near-term outlook. Maybe demographics are pushing down long rates a bit. Even there, I think that that's a complicated issue. But but let's accept for the argument's sake that that they're pushing down long rates a bit. Inflation is low, but it's still positive, actually. Productivity growth is a bit disappointing. That's true. But actually, it's not negative. It's positive. Inflation's not negative. It's positive. If I think about other things that are supposed to anchor long-term rates, things like you know time preference, this is what we learned as students, that we have a rate of time preference. You have to give me more than a dollar in a year from now to get me to not consume the dollar today. Has that really flipped around so that instinctively people are happy, all other things equal, to accept 95 cents, 99 cents in a year in order to forego a dollar of consumption now? Has human nature actually changed that much? I I admit to being a bit sceptical of that. So I think even if you think the near-term outlook for growth is soft or, you know, poor, is it really the worst it's ever been in human history? Yeah, I I struggle to, to get my mind around that, to be honest. So that's a long way of saying one remains puzzled by just how low they are. And I personally am not persuaded that were there to be efforts to push interest rates further and further below zero, that somehow that's some brave new vista of policy effectiveness. I, I doubt that. So it's, it's a puzzle and it's a very strange situation. I again come back to the point that monetary policy makers for these, this past decade have been doing everything they can to secure their mandate, but the things they can do that are within their powers are of limited effectiveness. You know, they're not completely ineffective, but they're of limited power compared to the days prior to the crisis. That's the reality, and it's uncomfortable, I think, to acknowledge that, but I believe, and, and I said this years ago, I think that's the situation that the collectively the central banking community has been in. It would seem that specifically for the ECB, maybe this is the the best central bank to analyze in this context, that the impetus from going from, or the impact from a minus 40 to a minus 50 or a minus 60, I think the skepticism around, around that ultimately helping them meet their growth and inflation mandate or their inflation mandate, as you say, I think there's a, a lot of skepticism on that front. And I think that this is where I wanted to, in a related context, get get some of your take. All of this policy owes to this inability to not just generate inflation, but I think that there's a crisis of inflation understanding. (laughs) I think Yellen named it a, a mystery. It's really difficult to understand why inflation is has been so low. There's a lot of soul searching, I think, here from policymakers. And I've been following a little bit the the Larry Summers, some of his work on secular stagnation. And initially I was very 
I'm not skeptical because he's a brilliant economist and I'm not, <laughs> but I just struggled with this, with some of the, the views on the notion that the market clearing price of interest may well be negative. And as you said, it just, this notion of time preference always made a lot of sense to me. But he points to these very big demographic kind of forces. And I'm just wondering, as you kind of step back and look at the global infl inflation picture, what are your big picture thoughts on some of the driving forces? What's What can we learn from the past or what's completely new in this current regime? Yeah, that's a pretty big question. And I suppose there's a, there's a couple of lenses through which one might look at it. The, let me give you the first one. If you took a chart of inflation since, say, World War II, and, and this would be true for almost every country, I think, certainly in our case, and that would be true for the US, you could make the argument there's basically one turning point in that series. Inflation went up and up and up and up and it peaked sometime in the mid-70s or early 80s, and then it's basically gone down since then. So from a big secular perspective, the question to be asking would be what were the forces that first pushed it up and then pushed it down? And maybe demographics have something to do with that. And I'm not, I haven't studied this in depth and I'm no demographer, but you did have the kind of passing of the, the baby boom generation, of which I'm one, into and then now sort of out of the workforce. So maybe maybe that's a factor. By the way, I think, though, that demographics, it's kind of complicated because if the argument is that the baby boomers are all now saving because they're at or approaching retirement, well, that, that could well be right. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is not just this kind of bulge going through the age distribution of society, it's also that longevity has been going up. And so even if you didn't have the sort of baby boom bulge issue, you've got the issue of people living much longer. The illustration I like to give of that is in this country, the, the age pension was introduced in 1919 and you got the pension at age 65 and at that time life expectancy for a male was 55. But now life expectancy for a male is around 80 and all our thinking about when you should retire and how do we, how do, we do retirement incomes, etc., has to change with life expectancy. So you've got the baby boom thing, you've got life expectancy shifting as well. And I think so. I think the boomers, we all save, but at some point we then have to start disaving when we're in retirement. But then that decision is complicated by the fact that we're realising actually I'm going to live a lot longer than we have been assuming even 25, 30 years ago. So that's, that's a kind of complex set of dynamics and I don't know how to kind of think through really the net effect of that on yields and my guess is that net effect is not a constant it's going to it's going to go it's going to change direction at some point so there's that there's that, that very long run there was really one up and one down in the in the secular story of, of inflation then there's what 
you might if you're sceptical, I'm not sure I'd go this far, but some people might say what the central banks do is they put the little ups and downs onto that big long-run trend, but the big long-run trend's not really driven by the central banks, it's driven by other stuff. I'm not sure I buy that, but that's a possibility that one could consider. As for what the central banks do, and this is the sort of five-year horizon trend rather than the, the lens, rather than the 50-year one, the big talk is how flat the Phillips curve is. By the way, it was flat in the other direction too. Inflation didn't really fall during the global financial crisis as much as it really should have given the size of the output gaps that we we saw in the US or Europe or a number of other jurisdictions. So it's true inflation hasn't gone up as much as we might have thought recently, but it didn't. I don't think it went down as much either 10 years ago. So it's had a certain innate stability that's quite remarkable. All that said, I'm not sure that Phillips Curve's relationships were that tight ever. You know, there's an association there or there was an association there. It was never that tight. It played out over years, not quarters or not months. And I'm not sure that association has entirely uh, gone away. Uh, it, it's, it's muted. That's true. I think, I think one has to accept that. I think one has to accept that the rate of growth of labour costs in a lot of countries is a bit lower than you might have thought given where measures of labour market utilisation stand. But that having been said, there has been some pickup in labour costs, I think, in the US. There has been, even here, some pickup, it's, but it's slower than we thought it, it might be. But the real problem here for central banks is that to create the, the inflation that you need to get back up to the, the target, we're a bit below target in, in many countries, not that far, but, but somewhat. To rectify that, what's needed is to create demand, demand for goods and services to put pressure on capacity utilisation. And if that could be done, I still think that inflation would gradually go up over time. The difficulty is that just having interest rates at ultra-low levels has not really generated the sort of growth in final demand in economies that you need to put that pressure on inflation. The US has come closest to it, but even there it's a slower process than we might have hoped. And this comes back to the point we were making earlier that monetary policy is less powerful than we might have hoped that it would be in an environment post an, an over-leveraged type event. Because really the way it works is you make money cheap and you need somebody somewhere to say, I'm going to take the cheap money and I'm going to start a project, employ somebody, try a new product, a new market, or just go go down to Walmart or, or wherever and, and actually spend the money. And the question is how much of that really happens just from interest rates alone being low? And, and I think the answer is less of it happens than used to be the case 15 or 20 years ago. So the central banks find it harder to generate final demand for goods and services than they used to, 
which means they find it harder to get inflation to go up than the textbook tell us, tells us that it should be. When I learned economics, inflation was always too high and the problem was how do we get it down and keep it down? I would never have dreamed that we would encounter a world where the problem is that we can't get it to go up. But that's where we are and I think it comes back to this limited power of interest rates and even quantitative measures to generate final demand in the real economy. Well, maybe this is where we can finish up is just on the interaction between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Thinking about Draghi, who seems very eager to have the fiscal side lend more than a helping hand and has been referencing that quite a bit in recent commentary. And I just wonder here in the States, there's more discussion, I think, about some of the wealth inequality, at least potential implications from extraordinary low interest rates and more aggressive push on the fiscal side is what's going to be in order. There's any number of Democratic candidates that are eager to sort of take the reins, so to speak, and you know, kind of be untethered to some extent by, at least in the old days, the, the notion of if you spend too much, you're going to get penalized by the bond market. There, at least right now, is scant evidence that that's going to happen anytime soon. And just there's a view, I think, in the U.S. that we have more space to, even as our budget deficit is is yawning and very high, there seems to be less of representation within our Congress to try to tell people that the deficit's a big risk. And so to me, it may be set up for a more aggressive fiscal action. There's this whole theory called MMT. It's kind of a broad set of things, but I think loosely I would say that at least insofar as the United States, budget deficits don't matter as much as you think. You control the currency and we should be trying to use it, deficit spending, for the betterment of society and specifically to to try to improve the lives of you know those folks who are being left out from a capitalism standpoint. From your standpoint, have you looked at the theory closely? Is it something that in in your circle gets a lot of discussion? I haven't looked into it in great depth. I, I'm, I'm aware that it's around and, you know, we hear reference made to it. There is some discussion in my own country about the role of fiscal policy, and I don't want to buy into that for obvious reasons. I guess what I would say is that If you think that the way monetary policy works is that I make it easier to borrow and I need somebody somewhere to feel they've got the balance sheet strength to take up that cheap funding and do something with it that creates real demand. So if that's how you think about it, and I think that's, that's a large part of how monetary policy works, then the question is, who is it? in society or in your economy that has a balance sheet that is not already too levered that might be responsive to the cost of capital being low. Well, historically in the US and and here, that's tended to be households. And I think there was a long period during which households, certainly here, and I, I venture this might have been true in the US too, They had a a sort of a latent desire 
to lever up. And whenever the central bank made it easier to do that, they would run ahead and do that. And then if we wanted to slow them down, we, we raised rates and they were quite responsive to that. But if that sector's already got enough leverage, they don't really want any more, let's say, then who, what other sectors are there? Well, there's the corporate sector. I think it's very unlikely, though, that business will take the lead. They might use low-cost funding to alter their debt equity structure and, and run higher leverage, but that's not the same thing as actually growing the business via plant and equipment investment or, you know, growing employment or something. It's just a financial structure change. So I think it's unlikely that business will take the lead in generating real demand in the economy just because interest rates are low. They're going to wait for the households to show more sign of consumer demand. And then that leaves the government. Can and should a government respond to interest rate incentives and do something with its own balance sheet? That's really the heart of the question. Without wanting to pine on, on whether they should or not, you can you can kind of see why the question at least gets asked because the cost of funding for public sector actors at the moment is incredibly low. In Europe, they get paid to take the money. So that, that's why the question gets asked. And I think it's understandable that there is this discussion given that monetary policy, as I say, is not entirely lacking in power, but it has less power than we would like and less power than it used to have. I would say that were there to be a significant downturn around the world now, I'm not saying that will happen, but if it did, then I suspect we might well see a quite quick resort to fiscal action in response because monetary policy has limited power in the response that it can make. And so the real issue, I guess, is what's the nature of the decision process that governments would undertake? What's the governance, to put it that way, around that so that communities and societies can make sensible decisions about when to start doing that and when to stop? You know, the, the big, the reason that there's been this taboo on um, fiscal activism and, and, and central banks assisting that, the reason there is that taboo, there's a very good reason, and it is that historically governments have found it hard to know when to stop. And so if you don't know when to stop, you, don't, you can't start. That's kind of the inherent problem here. And it would be good, actually, if that problem could be solved by some kind of framework that help the process of decision around when you might start fiscal stimulus and when you might stop it. And there are people talking now about how to, in a sense, bring together the monetary framework and the fiscal framework. That discussion is pretty embryonic at this stage, but there are people, I saw something by Philip Hildebrand recently, for yeah, example. Yeah, from BlackRock, yep. Which I interpret as trying to grapple with this very question. So it'll be interesting to see how that discussion proceeds from here. And one would hope, actually, that we're not faced with an imminent decision of, in a context of sudden recession 
faced with an imminent decision about how do we now quickly ramp up fiscal because monetary policy is, is of limited power. One hopes that that doesn't happen, but it's, it's not entirely impossible that we might face that. So it's useful to, I guess, give some thought to, to how you kind of have a framework that helps sensible decisions get made about starting and stopping. I share your interest in this, as you call it, embryonic but very important conversation between the, potentially the coordination between fiscal and, and monetary. I think it's likely to become a more important and more significant conversation, especially, you know, forever is a long time. So at some point, we'll, we'll hit another skid, another downturn in, in the global economy that's significant enough where we've got to do something in, in pretty good size. So I think that hopefully th- those conversations, if that's what's truly needed, and I think I share some of your views on the efficacy of policy on the monetary side from, from this starting point. Glenn, I want to thank you very much for your time. This has been a really, really fascinating and instructive conversation, and I'm grateful for you making yourself available and sharing your views, your perspective. It's really been great to have you on as a guest on our podcast. Well, thank you, Dean. I've enjoyed it very much and hope to see you soon. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.